Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. Today's guest needs no introduction from me, certainly. It's Om Malik, one of the godfathers of tech blogging, certainly, blogging as a business in general, uh, Web 2.0, and obviously today uh, a venture capitalist. Because he needs no introduction, I'll get right to uh, the conversation, but I do want to just take the time to say that I was so glad that I was able to do this one in person because I'd never met Ohm before, and he was as much of a gentleman and a warm, just generous, great guy as I had always assumed him to be following his career uh, online over the years. So thanks, Ohm, for the great conversation. And without further ado, please enjoy one of my favorite episodes thus far with the great Ohm Malik. Ohm Malik, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. I'm glad to be here. I, I would have had you from day one. It's been a long time coming. Um, I like to start up with background because it's always interesting to me how people find their way to tech. I think you went to, um, to school f- uh, for chemistry at first. Were you going to be a doctor or something? Hell no. Hell no? I'm like major disappointment for my parents. Like most Indian parents want their kids to be doctors and engineers. Mm-hmm. And I think from very early in my life, I wanted to be a journalist. Hmm. And I kind of knew it when I was very young. I just didn't know what it entailed, in a sense. I I used to read magazines, and they would inspire me. And I felt like, wow, the, I, most people would be like, oh, that's a great story. And I was mm-hmm. like, damn, how much fun the guy who wrote the story must so have So you're had. paying attention to the bylines and like, yeah, what is that yeah, guy's job yeah. like? Yeah. And like that's how I discovered people like Tom Wolfe and mm-hmm. you know uh, other famous writers from America. And I would go to the library to read it because we weren't rich enough to you know afford buying magazines and stuff. So, but it was mostly just reading and like realizing how how glamorous the life of a writer <laughs> is. Not true in hindsight, but at that time when you're young, it influenced me. But you know life. As when you're growing up in a lower middle class family is that you have to optimize for a job your education has to optimize for a living and I ended up you know joining uh, school for chemistry as my major mm-hmm. I did not have any plans to be even though I said otherwise to my parents uh, to be a doctor or an engineer maybe an architect but that was the the most traditional job I would ever do mm-hmm. in my mind. And uh, and I had not read Ayn Rand by that time. <laughs> so just to be clear, I just felt, you know, making buildings was kind of cool. Yeah. Like, you know, I was very interested in the cool aspect of, of, of everything. And I think somewhere along the way, I figured out my mind was more towards the creative end of the spectrum and not towards the science end of the spectrum. Um, and that's how I got started into journalism, and I wrote about anything and everything. Well, is it in school? Like, do you join the student paper or anything we, like that? We didn't really have a student paper, uh-huh. but as I grew older, I started working for local magazines, like teenage magazines and stuff like so that. This is, we should say this is in New Delhi. Yeah, it was in Delhi in yeah. India. Um, and so that, I found that interesting. So your, your first journalism job out of school, and, and one thing I read... You described it as sort of like Tiger Beat. Yeah, it was uh, Tiger Beat. You guys have Tiger Beat here, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I or think it's like still around. Smash hits in UK. That yeah. Was, it was like a pop magazine, but with like totally influenced by British culture, less American culture, uh-huh. and focused entirely on like high school and college students. Wow. So you're. Yeah, it was kind of weird publication. The name was The Sun, uh-huh. The Weekly Sun, uh-huh. and it had weird things like pinup photos and the whole nine yards. So you're 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 chasing around pop stars essentially. That's your first beat. No, actually, it was mostly rewriting stories in international papers for the for the for the magazine. But I mostly covered high school events, college events, hmm. university events, and I also did some actual reporting. I kind of covered. There was a spate of terrorism in India, and there was a few standout cops. I kind of wrote about them. Hmm went on on the road with those guys to write about them. So I covered pretty much anything and everything. Wrote about movie stars, and India movie stars are bigger than pop stars. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. wrote about a lot of movie stars, which is kind of fun, you know. So how did you get that job, that first job? Uh, the first job was actually I met the editor of the magazine at a nightclub. Mm. And I said, dude, your magazine sucks, and here is why. And I gave him my reasons, and he says, you know, if you're so smart, why don't you come work for me and fix it? Uh-huh. And I said, oh, it's like, you know, you, you shouldn't open your mouth. You don't realize, <laughs> like, you know, sometimes you actually get what you want. And I didn't want the job. I just was, like, being, like, you know, flippant about it, mm-hmm. and, like, it kind of came back to bite me. And then I was with him for a very long time. He became a great mentor and helped me along. And Do you want to name him? Uh, his name is Mukesh Khosla, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, he and I, then we started something together, and then I realized that, you know, the I needed a bigger pond to swim in. Right, so we're ta- this is the late 80s that you're essentially freelancing and doing all sorts of journalism in India. Um, why, you, you, you come to the U.S., or you go to Europe first, but you're saying you wanted a, a bigger pond to swim in, and... Um, well, I went to Europe for a few months mm-hmm. just to kind of, you know, figure out what was happening, wrote a lot about, you know, overseas Indian community and mm-hmm. about stock market, bond markets at that time, and so on and so forth. But when I, I then I discovered CompuServe and uh, the computers in a way that, like, I first time I used CompuServe was on a, was on a computer uh, owned by a friend, and I was like, yeah, that that thing, there there is something to it, and I had no idea how to explain. And I I did know that because I came from a somewhat of a limited background from an, a monetary standpoint, mm-hmm. like even phones were like a big deal. And I felt, wow, the if you can send a message to each other for free, it's way cool. Like it, like I would not be limited to talking on the phone, which not everybody has. And I said, what if everybody could just talk or communicate for free? That was the way I thought about technology from the first time uh, when I came, you know, when I experienced it. And I think then I got sucked into CompuServe world of like, you know, forums and magazines and information. I just kind of knew that this was something. And then I read some stuff online, uh, sorry, in magazines. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went back to India and I was going to the libraries doing research and I 
discovered articles about, you know, um, the ARPANET, which is the precursor right. to the modern internet, and and you know, information superhighway, which companies like Telecommunications Inc., TCI, which later became AT and T, which is now AT part of Comcast. <laughs> oh, okay. Right, oh, AT and T. Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, the the cable part. The cable part. Yeah. And and so. I was intrigued by all that. I just felt that the power of, you know, instant and cheap communications, that I understood because I came from a somewhat of a limited background. Mm -hmm. And mostly I always felt that if people communicated more, it would just be great. I, and I think that has been the, the driving force in how I think about everything, mm -hmm. is being, if you communicate more, things are different because of that. And I think that has been the arc of my life so far. Mm -hmm. And every time I see better communication, I just get excited about it. You come to New York in, what, 92? Yeah. And uh, you come without a job, right? Yeah. So how do you land your first job? Uh, you know, a lot of, knock on a lot of doors and, uh -huh. you know, do some, you know, odd jobs. And I ended up, you know, freelancing mostly for a lot of Indian papers in India. Mm -hmm. Which is how I really paid my bills, and like then, India abroad and, and yeah. things like that. Yeah. yeah, and then and then I ended up working for like at you know for after a couple of years I landed a job at uh, Quick Nikkei News, which is where I really found the the technology beat, and I got the training to be a good tech reporter. And so again, a great editor. You know, it's like life is about great editors. There's a gentleman by the name of Stephen Dante. Unfortunately, I have lost touch with him, hmm. which kind of sucks. So Nikkei News is like a newswire, and like your beat is what, like microcontrollers? And, and just... my beat was semiconductors and, and the emerging field of uh -huh. the internet. So you And don't... the internet at that time was not Netscape. It was companies like the UUNet Technologies right. and PSI Net. Mm -hmm. People with ISPs and... MCI and you know people who were doing the backhaul stuff. Well, you don't have the the technology background, so is it just one of those things that the field is so new that anybody that knows anything about it can cover it? Or I was very well read, just to be clear. Like okay. I would read about technology and internet and everything all the time. I was very active, and you know, would purchase all the magazines and like that was my life was. Like, you know, I had a day job, and the evenings I would just spend time on tech and, you know, learning about computers and all those kind of things. You'd read books about it. I was basically educating myself on the side about technology. Mm -hmm. I, because I kind of knew that it spoke to me like no other story had spoken to me before. Mm -hmm. Not as a techie, but more as a reporter. It's like, this is a big story. I don't know what it is, but I should cover it. And I just needed to find a way to get there. And one of the steps was coming to America and getting a job at a publication which would let me write about tech. And uh, there weren't that many tech business writers. This is what time. I'm saying. Yeah. It's like it's a, it's a wide open field. So yeah. the first person to raise their hand and say, I know a little something about this. Yeah. Okay, that's your beat. Yeah. Um, you're also, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but um, you do launch some some online efforts like around you know the south asian community like 
are, are these like early portals type things? Uh, early email list, okay. and then it became like a website uh, called Desi Party. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, you know, it's like, again, part of my tinkering with the internet. Like, I just need, my whole thing is just like, nobody's going to teach me anything. There is no, no way to learn from this. I didn't go to college. Let me just learn the hard way. Just try it. And that's what I did. Could you, uh, is there an alternative history here if, if you had ridden that boat and like uh, created portals and gone the entrepreneurial route then? You know, I could dr- drive myself mad thinking about that. Do you? the lost opportunities. But I think, you know, today I'm very different. But, you know, for the longest time, I loved what I did, which is journalism and writing about tech. So, yeah, now in hindsight, I can go crazy, but I loved every minute of covering this story. Like I said, this was the greatest story of my life, and it still is, mm-hmm. even though I'm not a journalist anymore. Well, let's let's talk about that journalism. Um, tell me how you how we get to Forbes. And well, uh, Forbes was fun because... Uh, a quick Nikkei uh, was a great job, and but it wasn't very clear where I was going to go with it. And Forbes was getting started on their nascent online effort on Forbes.com. People don't remember it, but they were like the early innovators in the news media. Business. I remember that. No, them I, and CNET exactly, and and then Street.com a little bit later. But why why was that at Forbes? Who's so, the person that? So the, there was a guy called David Cherba. He uh-huh. was the one who wrote about the the early stories about you know ARPANET and 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 you know the telecom revolution, and like he also was writing about things like. Unix, and I always felt like he was just a cool guy mm-hmm. who knew everything, and 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 a lot of his work actually influenced me. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm I got to meet him. And then when I learned that he was going to be the guy starting Forbes.com, I just kind of hounded him for forever. And and again, I I think we need to underline how early they were. Like that launches in like '97, maybe '96. '96, okay. But so, I started hounding him in 96, uh, 95, 96 on like email and then faxes. I don't know if people remember faxes. <laughs> I would fax him. But one day I just actually, you know, it's like he wrote a letter to him. I said, how come you don't even want to meet me? Like, it's like, what kind of a journalist are you that who doesn't even want to like know yeah. who this person Make is? Make a connection. Been, you know, I've been hounding you forever and then... I don't know, out of the blue, he called me one day. And actually, some other person in his office, his name is Michael Knorr, uh-huh. called me and invited me in, and and then the rest is history. Well, so there's two things about Forbes then at that point is they're very early in terms of having an actual newsroom, a staffed newsroom that's going to create content specifically for online. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's not till 96 that New York Times goes online for the first time. So this is early days. But also the fact that you guys are covering tech as an industry, you're really early at that as well. Yeah. I think and the reason it was possible was first, we had a great leader. I think people don't talk about David and and his role in technology, mm-hmm. journalism, right? Like it's completely forgotten over a period of time. He was like really visionary about the whole business of online media. And 
Plus, there was Tim Forbes who decided to back us, mm-hmm. right? Like more importantly, we people talk about Forbes family as the Luddites, but Tim is the one who gave a big chunk of money to David and team, a big chunk is relative, mm-hmm. you know. Now it's whole different, but at that time, mm-hmm. against the wishes of a lot of people in the company, the print people at Forbes did not like the idea of online Forbes. They didn't like the idea of an own staff. They didn't like the idea of being even in the same office, like so much so that they put us in a you know a different place. Mm-hmm. I think it was a, between David and and Tim. Those were the two like power sources behind why Forbes went online. Everybody, you know, New York Times people, everybody that I talk to remembers that sort of, you know, it's it's sort of turf protecting, but uh, they didn't like the online getting their own separate space, getting, you know, why are, why are you producing for online first instead of, you know, the print edition? Yeah. And it, it seems crazy <laughs> 20 years later that that's the, the tension. But I mean, that's what, in hindsight, that's the business which kind of got them acquired mm-hmm. as a company. Like, nobody cared about the magazine. Magazine is just like such a joke right now. Right, yeah. But that time, the magazine was something else, you know. They had great journalists, they had great editors like, you know, Jim Michaels, mm-hmm. Gretchen Morganson, mm-hmm. you know, that's like, you know, Stuart Pinkerson. Like, they were just like so, you know, Damon Darlin was another guy who was mm-hmm. like, there is so, Peter Kafka right. was on the print side of things. Mm-hmm. Now he's an online convert, but that's a different story. Well, But back then, nobody, like, you know, what's his name, Daniel... Sorry, like Roth, who's mm-hmm. the editor of LinkedIn now, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. again was on the print side. They were the golden boys of, of, of uh, Forbes magazine at that time. Uh, Lee Gallagher, who mm-hmm. run, who's the managing editor at Fortune now, and all these people were there all at the same time, trained by the same editors. Some of us were on the other side of the fence, like you know the the family nobody wanted to talk mm-hmm, about. Mm-hmm. The, the redneck cousins is all they would call. Well, this them. is getting a little ahead of it, but I mean, eventually, you know, it becomes the story because I remember Forbes ASAP as a separate, you know, section yeah. and things like that. But, but, but let's do talk about that. Uh, covering tech becoming the story in the dot com era, and suddenly it's the biggest story, certainly in town and in the world, and for for business and finance. Um, what are you covering? And just contextualize for me what you remember about the dot-com era? So, you know, I, like there is m- multiple ways I can take this. So, what was I covering? I was covering Intel, Microsoft, Vintel, Sun Microsystems, Cisco Systems, networks, optical technologies, chip technologies, the real technologies which powered the internet. Mm-hmm. Uh, very little of actually Netscapes of the world, mm-hmm. mostly because there was other people who were doing that, and I just was good at covering the under the hood stuff, and so I covered networks very extensively. I looked at a lot of the financial models of uh, of uh, companies, like mm-hmm. and I looked at incubators, like there was companies like IC, you know, CMGI and. Internet Commerce Group and all these people which were like incubator holder companies. They've come back now as something mm-hmm. rebranded, uh, you know, as studios. Right. Yeah. And so the I covered all that and like I just was out there 
all the time. I worked basically 18 hours a day. I was like a kid in a candy store. There was like stories everywhere and there just wasn't enough time in the day. I mean, I still remember writing three to four pieces every day and just, and still having like, come on, I can do one more. Like, mm. and there was no quota or anything. Like there was just like, there was the, the whole industry was so new Mm -hmm. that it was great to be part of it. Yes, there was like, you know, a little bit of bubble environment, but it was exuberance, not greed, mm -hmm. which was driving it, at least in the early days. I was going to say, I can see that in 97. But by 99, do you start I to... I think the 2000 is when the greed took over. Mm -hmm. I think from 96 till 2000, it was still a lot of exuberance. People were wild-eyed like you know it was like not like I can get rich if we just like there is so much opportunity kind of a feeling mm -hmm. and you know but like you were seeing more and more you know people who I call you know anyway I'm, I'm gonna as I restrain myself I think there was a lot of uh, somebody said once on here when the pretty people show the up. flim flam people yeah. came towards late 99 or mm -hmm. mid 99 to the, I call the flim flam group and you know they, they the people who are like they wear like fancy clothes and stuff like that but you know the real the real tech people were still kind of making things happen like you know Sun was talking Sun Microsystems mm -hmm. a great company which no longer exists talked about a network computer at that in, in that time which was like my big story it was like having an iPhone like story at that time mm -hmm. and and it was it was like so exciting to kind of have this idea that you will have a machine which will connect to the network and you will use your biometric identity to just get your computer. It's like, hmm, sounds familiar, yeah. right? Then machine, right? Yeah. Um, well, or or things like I, I talked to um, one of the guys from Sudo here recently. Yeah. You know, so online video for years we were told that it was going to be a big thing and it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't. We thought it went away and then it was. Yeah. You know? I think the, the the biggest challenge as technology people is to remember that you can be very early or you can be very late. Getting it, timing it right is the key thing. Mm -hmm. um, but it was uh, it was like a lot of exuberance in the early days. The greed took over in the late 90s and it kind of just has been increasing since then, like slowly and slowly. And mostly because people figured out like this is where money there is money to be made. I think you see things like, you know, consultants like McKinsey and Bain consultants, bankers, lawyers start companies. That's when you know like you're to ending towards the end of like a boom mm -hmm. and bubble is about to start. Well, you do, I'm not suggesting that you got a taste of the greed, but you do jump to the money side in 99 briefly Yeah. Um, to H&Q. Um, but you don't last very long there. It was a disaster. I hated it. Okay. I wasn't ready for it. I think I didn't like the pe the job. I didn't like what it meant. It was all about like investing in late stage companies and with an Asian spin. And it's like, yeah, I'm in the valley. I want to be part of the the change. I don't want to be part of like looking at things like investing in golf courses. <laughs> I mean, not my thing. So, okay, um, this is bringing us up to the bubble bursting. So you, you dally in the money side, 
you go immediately back to the journalism yeah, side. Yeah, that was the best move ever. And that's Red Herring. Yeah. And um, good place? <sighs> the best job of my life. Mm. I loved Red Herring. I think it was a great marriage of, of money, innovation, uh, unbridled optimism, and a lot of cynicism, all in like one package. You know, people don't remember that magazine because, you know, it's like just like it's a footnote now. Hey, I've gone, I've gone to the public library and gotten the old issues out and <laughs> gone through them. And so it was, it was a great publication because it would let me write about tech mm -hmm. and it would let me write about money and it would let me write about, you know, like the bubble mm -hmm. and like the negative things in the world, like more clearly and coherently than any other publication. I love my editors there. Like, you know, this is a common theme. I love my editors because they make me better. Uh, Jason Ponton and Blaze Zariga were two guys who were just like my editors, and they were fantastic. Uh, this is sort of a dumb question, but I ask it of everybody. Um, did you, was there a moment where you felt it, where you're like, oh, the bubble's, the bubble's here, it's burst, it's over, the, the jig is up? Oh, yeah, that was like, when I got the job as a money manager, it's like, shit, this can't be real. Like, I don't know anything. Like, I, I am, I'm part of the industry. I have a great Rolodex. I, I can understand where things are going. But what do I know about money? How do I know how, how to make money? And I think for me at that point was, yeah, this is not real. This is definitely something crazy going on. And then when I figured that out, I realized that, well, let's just write this. I mean, I, mean, we, I, mean, I was on the other side going up. Mm -hmm. You know, the roller coaster is coming down, so this will be fun too. And it was, like, it was a great uh, story. Well, so I'm showing you your book here <laughs> that I have read, by the way. You can see I have highlights and notes in oh, here. Oh, no. Yes, I've read it. The, the story that you're actually covering, people remember, if they remember the dot-com bubble at all, they remember pets.com, the e-commerce e stocks and things like that. But you were covering what was essentially a simultaneous bubble that was in many ways larger, yeah. which is the infrastructure, um, you know, the global crossings. You know. So t tell me a little bit about that other bubble that has been forgotten, about, about the, the, the infrastructure side of that time. So I can say, I can go, like, you know, you can take me back and I can say, I think a lot of uh, the bubble in the infrastructure was based on this fallacy that the internet traffic doubles every six months. This was uh, a statement made by a guy called Bernie Sanders, mm -hmm. who was, I think it was Bernie Sanders, if my memory serves. Bernie Madoff. Are you meaning Bernie Madoff? No, 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 not oh. Bernie Madoff. Okay. Bernie okay. Madoff didn't know tag. <laughs> Bernie Sanders was a Canadian high school hockey coach who lived in Mississippi, and he started a company called WorldCom. Mm -hmm. Oh, Bernie Sanders. Yes, yeah. right. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was either him or somebody at MCI. I can't yeah. remember. Yeah. Or somebody at UUNet. I can't remember. One of those companies said that the internet traffic is doubling every three, every six months. And he wants it to be like a Moore's Law kind of thing. Or something like that, yeah, three yeah. months or six months. Yeah. Like it's been a long time, clearly, yeah. right? But it was some vague statement like that. And when I read that, I was like, yeah, why not? Like, I mean, everybody's using the internet. It must be true. 
Well, like me, everybody believed it, except one guy uh, who was a researcher at AT&T, and he wrote a white paper on this and saying, this is not true. Even his bosses didn't like that idea that he was trying to bubble, bust the bubble. I read that paper and I was like, wait, this guy is actually making sense. And then I started digging in and then I just kept going and finding that all these people were doing deals with each other and everything was just kind of made up. And It's th- similar to how you know Yahoo and all the portals were making their money from the other dot-coms, yeah. advertising yeah. on them. So you're saying that the, the infrastructure people... Give me your traffic. I'm feeding this traffic over here, and so it's like a snakey. Well, I time. think first it was just that. Yeah. So then it became, I'll sign a deal with you. You sign a deal with me, and we'll sign a deal with the third one, and we will just count how much money that deal is on our on our books. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why Global Crossing got into trouble. WorldCom got into trouble. It's actual accounting. Account- accounting yeah. and like there was like all of this was just made up. Like. But that led a lot of money into the market. Like everybody pumped money into these stocks. And as a result of that, so much infrastructure was built. When I say infrastructure, I mean like the fiber which was laid as a result of that, especially from New York to London or from, you know, Virginia to to London, you know, cross Atlantic, cross Pacific. The world was got much more wired because so much of mad money flew into into the networking and telecom space. You know, companies like Cisco and Nortel, and they were flying high because there was everybody assumed this thing is just going to keep continuing because all the all the experts uh, were talking about the internet is going to be needing all this bandwidth, mm-hmm. right? True, mm-hmm. except. No one had any facts. Like it was a, a true statement, but without but not any fact. Yet. Yeah. Right. Well, you know, nobody can tell when things are going to happen. Right. But it was a interesting. You know, in hindsight, I kind of feel was I harsh because it did happen. Um, I don't know. People don't remember this guy called George Gilder, who was. I do. Yep. Right. He was the the, the soothsayer yeah. and the, you know, he was the guru of you know, broadband mm-hmm. and optical networking boom. And he helped pump up that myth also. There was a Salmon Brothers, which is an investment bank, which is part of Citibank mm-hmm. now. A guy called Jack Grubman, mm-hmm. you should just Google him. Mm-hmm. He was the guy who would pump up the stocks a lot. And all that money led to massive demand of hardware and networking gear. And it created another bubble, which was like not backed by solid fundamentals of business and it was way bigger than the dot-com bubble in terms of money yeah like yeah Yeah. and for me it was like that's a bigger story nobody's chasing it i'm just gonna go there let let you know industry standard go after pets.com i don't (laughs) care about that but i'm pretty sure pets.com got more page views than than you know global crossing global crossing (laughs) yeah um well, I, I've said this, I think, on the show before, but I mean, you're, you're right when you say that they weren't wrong in the end because people like Google, after the bust, get to take advantage of this really cheap, dark fiber. Right. And so it's, it's the fact that Web 2.0, which we'll get to, um, is able to start, all these companies are able to start up so cheaply is because all that infrastructure was laid in this bubble that yeah. we're talking about. I think a lot of it, 
when you look back, you know, everything is connected, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think each thing, like anything has come as an isolated thing. You know, a lot of the technologies at Google, you know, flew from Bell Labs and, and Sun Microsystems. Like, you know, we forget that those were the great innovators. And someday when Google ends, th those technologies are gonna flow into other parts of the ecosystem. It just is part of the, the great, you know, tradition of technology industry. Circle of life, yeah, as they say in the language. It is, it is, right, you know. And uh, I think the, the I, I've actually joked about this, is that modern web, the modern internet is, you know, standing on the carcasses of a lot of great whales, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And that's what it really is. But like I was going to say this, you know, my favorite saying, of, which I say most of the time is, in hindsight, you're either a genius or an idiot. You know, if you're smart, you know, if you're lucky and you're right, you're smart. And mm -hmm. if you're lucky and you're wrong, you're just an idiot, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. I think as a reporter, you're always running the risk of being on one side or the other. Before I've been more of an idiot than more of a smart guy, so I'm okay with it. Oh, I don't know. We're about to get into the blogging stuff. So yeah. um, you, were, you were ahead of the game on that. Before we get into the blogging, let, let's mention Business 2.0, also a good place. Great place. Great mm -hmm. editor, uh, Josh Quitner. Yes, you know, of course. Yeah. There is a theme. And uh, he knew how to package my madness into, into like stories which more and more people would read. So Forbes was an early online crowd publication, very financial audience. Red Herring was very technology, Silicon Valley tech community and finance com community audience. Business 2.0 was a wider business audience, and I think each step has helped me get, you know, a wider uh, reader, readership. And Josh would take like all these trends I would cobble together, and I said, "This is a great story," and he knew how to kind of package it. Right? He was just like, "Oh, we can do this," and we. I, I remember I said, "Like, you know, we're coming to an age which is like we'll go into Web 2.0." where we can assemble companies with like open source software, everything you off know, the shelf. cloud services yeah. and stuff like that. And his whole thing was, oh, sort of sort of like ramen noodles, like, you know, put them in water and the mm -hmm. noodles are ready. And I said, yeah. So that became the idea behind the Insta company. Mm -hmm. uh, I kept telling him about the trend of like small companies being acquired by big companies because they develop specific features which big companies need and they don't really have to take on the cost of building them in-house and hiring people. That Now that trend has come to be known as acquire. Right. And, and like, but that continued for a long time. So there was like four or five stories like that we did and he really helped package them. And that's when I realized like, you know, this was the third, fourth great editor I worked with mm -hmm. who knew how to package the stories well and I think that is very key people you know talk about you know editors as like oh they're like who needs an editor a great editor takes like an idea and turns it into magic right like I mean we, we may not be big fans of folks like you know Tina Brown at time but like could lot she made a great magazine she mm -hmm. put great stuff in a in a package you wanted to read you know every month at Vanity Fair, you know, you know, uh, same goes for like you know Anna Wintour. Like she knows what is 
she has taste and packaging and branding and all that magic only editors can do and I think great editors are few and far between and I got the chance to work with four really great ones I hope you know um, more young people get that kind of mentorship because that is what made me a good journalist not not my talent I think I got I got educated you're, you're being too what's the word I got I got schooled by <laughs> Four really great teachers. So a year ago, right now, I think Rafat Ali was sitting where you're sitting. Um, where do you where do you get the idea from blogging? Everybody, every early blogger I've talked to, except for one, um, who basically invented it, said I was reading this guy, and I was like, well, why can't I do that same thing? Where did where did where did the blogging start for you? So for me, blogging actually started as a newsletter. Uh, I used to have a newsletter in my my dot-com days and uh, I had no idea I was gonna do blogging except this newsletter was all about craziness I would see uh-huh. and except I couldn't write about it in public place because I worked for a monthly magazine and it was kinda difficult to share and so I started writing this newsletter and uh, one day I said you know this newsletter thing is crazy and I was reading uh, and I had my own blog in which I would link to my, not my blog, my website, which I use made with software like Dreamweaver and stuff. Mm-hmm. There's no CMS though, you're saying you're, you're hard coded. Just like hard coded yeah. website. And, and it was just essentially my resume and links to my articles, which would come once a month. So it wasn't really a big deal. It was more like, like just a list of articles and I would, I would update it occasionally. But then I discovered Dave Weiner mm-hmm. and Doc Souls, two guys, and I liked what they were doing and they the way they were telling the story in bits and links and everything. I said like, yeah, this is what I do in my in my newsletter, except this looks better. Like the forget the damn newsletter, this just looks better. And I just kind of went with it. I started out with Blogger. Um which is an easy easy way to do it. Then I went to Movable Type, which mm-hmm. is another tool. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I love the instant feedback aspect of it. This happened in December 2001. Before that, it was just like, I, I called it a website. I would not call it blogging. I had like no clue it was known as blogging. I thought Dave and Doc were doing blogging. And to me, they are my heroes. I read them forever. They, I think Dave's reporting during the September 11th mm-hmm. attack was so influential on me as to like what, you know, what media means and should mean in, in the future because it was clear that we were in a world of like too much information, not knowing what is right, what is wrong, and he was putting it together using his good judgment. Or to, to some people, not his good judgment, I don't care. But to me, he made perfect sense, and I just kind of just got sucked into that vortex of, of like you know, sharing and linking and sharing my opinions. And I said, "Yep, this is what it is." Because you're still, well, maybe not concurrently, but you're still even when the blog starts to take off, you're still at Business 2.0. No, I was at Red Herring. Red Herring when you started, right? Yeah. But so the point is, is like, you would save your big stuff for the magazine work it was completely different things the magazine okay. was yeah. like writing 
long pieces. This is like, remember, from my most of my life, I've been a daily reporter. Mm -hmm. So I have a lot of sources, people, and talk. I mean, not now, but till like four years ago, I would make between 30 to 50 calls a day to all my sources, mm -hmm. just checking in an actual phone mm -hmm. and not emails or texts, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so I had a lot of incoming information and I did not know what to do with it. So it made perfect sense to turn this into a blog and that's what I did. Do you remember, is there an evolution there where all of a sudden you're realizing, oh, I'm breaking news on my blog and it's getting attention? And I had to do it here because I couldn't wait till the end of the month when... I would like to say that I'm that smart. Mm. The answer is no. Mm -hmm. I had no idea that I was, you know, creating this tech news blogging category. Mm -hmm. which I was just doing, which came naturally to me. It's like, I need a place to publish. There is no one who will take my daily stuff. The, the magazine just wanted great features from me, and which is what I did. In the evening, I would go home and I write up the daily stuff and just put it. Because there was no competition, I was like, I didn't have the time pressure to write mm -hmm. it. And I still would take my time and write like thoughtfully and like analyze all the gossip I would have heard and just put it together in, in, a, in a coherent manner. So I think a lot of it was just serendipity. Influenced by Doc and Dave, like mm -hmm. I just think they're my gods. Mm -hmm. And and they both showed the way. Mm -hmm. I followed the path. I did my own twist to it. Mm -hmm. I came up with more original stuff than than other other bloggers. But it was mostly because I was like, I'm a reporter. I have daily news. I have daily information. This is a great way to tell the story. I don't have to write a lead. I just can write two paragraphs and be done with it. And it's like it just was like. Newswire reinvented for me. Well, what about the idea that the story finds you again? That you're in the right place at the right time. We're getting into Web 2.0, where all of a sudden there's a new startup that you can report on, a new technology. You know, Ajax comes through. There's you know Flickr and and things like this. Being on the scene for when a scene starts to arrive again. Do you think that that was just serendipity? I mean, so it's. A lot of it is serendipity. A lot of it is also knowing and believing in the industry I cover. Like I said, this was the greatest story of my life. I knew it deep down that the decline doesn't mean it's over. Right. PCs had gone through a burst and they came back, and and like so did the you know other client server technologies. And it was just for me. This was a story of tech. Whether going up or going down, I just find tech fascinating. I think tech is the only industry where you invent a brand new future every day. Every person would invent that future every day. Or at least for most of my life, that's how I felt. And so when I would go to to the you know parties after the, the things had gone south, and it was just like, you know, a few thousand people left in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And we would just hang out and then through the ashes, Web 2 arose, I mean, arose up. And we would just write about the interesting things which were happening because there were. Just when, so this is the unfortunate part of 
of all boom bust stories is that when there is a boom happening, a lot of non you know industry reporters and publications show up, right? They cover it and they pump up these people like stars and they make them into geniuses. And then the market collapses and then they are all evil, mm-hmm. you know, villains and everything. So it's just classic, like everything. You know, we we build up Michael Jackson and we drag him down. We build up Prince and we drag him down. And, you know, it just is like the weird American sport of like building and dragging down people. And, and that's what happened. And, but for those of us who are believers, there is still... Technology is not over. The the financial flim-flam is over. The mm-hmm. tech was still there. The pieces of tech were still there. And the more I covered telecom and optics and networks, the more I realized that we are all getting more and more connectivity. We are getting more and more bandwidth. And to me, that was like, the internet is not over, right? right? The version one of the the commercial aspect of the internet didn't work out. That doesn't mean it's over. And I think that is what has kept me going even today. Like, you know, two days ago I was at the Apple event and I left very confident that despite all the negative things I read in the media right now, you know, great stuff has yet to happen and we just don't know what the great stuff is. So as far as I'm concerned, it's an opportunity. And I think that's what being here for so long and having seen the cycles of up and down has taught me is that there is always another opportunity. The Web 2.0 was, we didn't even know it was Web 2.0. We just knew all these companies were inventing new things mm-hmm. using all that had come from, from you know, the madness of Web 1.0. Well, I think Web 2.0 was an idea name coined by John Battelle. Right. So I hated that name. It just For me, it was just Web. Well, speaking of Battelle, let's talk about turning blogging into a business. Um, nice segue. Yeah, well, <laughs> when, do you, when does it occur to you that this, this thing that you've been doing on the side, it could actually, you, you could be the publisher? So... I had a great job. Like I said, I love Josh Quitner. I love Business 2.0. And I love the fact that I could put Google Ads on my blog and the money would go straight to my bank account. (laughs) (laughs) And I would still have a salary. So it was great. It was like, it was a profitable, very profitable operation. And so I liked doing it, given that my salary sucked at Business Mm -hmm. 2.0. And uh, I kept doing it. And it was like, I had met Rafat and you know Michael Arrington mm-hmm. in during the time and they were both like dude like why are you working for somebody else why aren't you doing it you know it's like so Michael and I have become friends and he said you're inspiring me to do my thing what the hell is wrong with you you should not be working for the man and mm-hmm. you know it's like he's very passionate about being independent and uh, then um, I had met Tony Schneider during the course of writing a story. From Automatic, we should say. Yeah, yeah. he's mm-hmm. the guy. At that time, he was, when I met him, he was the CEO of a company called Odd Post. Mm. And they were part of my story, New Road to Riches, which is what 
I wrote about, which has now become the Aqua Hire trend. Mm -hmm. And he and I became friends, and through him I became friends with Tony Conrad, who started companies like Sphere and About Dartme. And the, we would meet often, and we would talk about it, and they would both hound me and say, like, dude, you're like so well-read, people love you, you know, blah, 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 why aren't you doing this as your own business? And I was like, I don't know, I like my job, I like my boss, you know, and this is just traditional money. And then one day I come back from a trip in in Toronto, I come back and and then I call up Tony and I said, you know, you're right, I should do this on my own. <laughs> because at that point, you know, what happened in Toronto was Matthew Ingram was mm -hmm. interviewing me there and he says, he was interviewing me because of GigaOM, not for business to one right, yeah. And to me, that was like, you're oh, the wow. story now. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's like, that makes no sense. <laughs> but and when I, on the way back, and I just was very clear that I'm going to, I'm going to go. I called up Tony and I said, like, what should I do? And he said, why don't you come meet my partners at True and see what we can do. And like literally overnight, uh, we got set up a meeting and they funded me. And right. next thing I know is like I'm starting a company. Like it happened so fast. Like it literally happened in a couple of weeks. But, you know, there was been like six years had gone, almost five and a half years had gone into it beforehand. But I was just like happy with the money. Well, and the, the, the Battelle segue is you, you sign up with Federated early on yeah. as well. And so... Mostly because I just like, I don't want to hire salespeople. Mm -hmm. I don't want to manage salespeople. But, mm -hmm. you know, in the end, you realize that you don't, you don't outsource your most important job, which is making money. Um, but, but it was great because it led me to that one trip, you mm -hmm. know, like I actually was very surprised that people would talk to me just about the blog and not my job. And I was like, I'm writing these amazing stories. How come you're not talking about them? And like, that actually bugged me initially. Hmm. And I was like, okay, well, if they're not, then. Because they're reading your blog every morning. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so you go fully pro with that in what, like 2006? June 2006. Okay. We launched on July 4th, 2006. Give me a sense before we get into the running the company. Give me a sense of that time, Arrington, um, people like Richard McManus, competing for scoops. All of a sudden, there is this ecosystem. Of people who love technology and competing for scoops. I think that is the cru crucial difference. For the longest time, tech industry was covered by people who were looking for the negative story, and here we were, four or five people who were just like, you know, there's great stuff happening. We gotta write about these guys. The rest of the media is not gonna do anything about it. And for me, it was like, you know, Flickr is like so amazing. What a great comeback story. So I wrote about it. I wrote about their sale, you know. Mm -hmm. Like, I wouldn't say that a lot of these people were my friends, but we knew each other from the scene. And I was, you know, like, I'm, they were not my enemies, so. Like, you know, so that's a fine line as a reporter, so. It's a friendly competition, but it keeps you, yeah, like, keeps you, know, you motivated. Yeah, I mean, it's like, there were times, you know, I always have to remember, like, rem I remember 
Every time I had a scoop, Mike would email me and say, dude, that was a great scoop. I wish I had it. Mm -hmm. And I had the same thing. Not because, you know, we, like, yeah, we can compete professionally, but we're not enemies, right? Mm -hmm. Like, Richard was great, like, you know, the amazing stuff he did from New Zealand, right. for God's yeah. sake, you yeah. know? That was just genius. And I think that was part of the movement, right? Like, we were part of the community which was creating things and we were writing about it. Mm-hmm. So, GigaOM turns into Giga Omnimedia. Yeah. And you're launching several different verticals and several different, and you're hiring people. And so, what are what are you like as an editor when you've got people under your wings? Oh, I always. Well, I gave them whatever I have, right? Like mm-hmm. my my Rolodex, my time, my. Uh, whatever I had learned as a as a reporter, uh, you know, I I wasn't really a good like I don't know how to do like editing as in the classic sense of editing. I would read people's stories and say, "Hey, this is what I would be looking for," but but I gave them a lot of freedom. Um, I think I was a good good editor, but. I wasn't a great one. I like mm-hmm. I'm just a reporter, man. I still am in my head. I'm still a reporter and uh, which is why I always kept trying to hire an editor and mostly because I couldn't get over the fact that I could be an editor. Well, I mean, one indication is the the talent of people that came through there. I mean, you mentioned Matthew Ingram works for you eventually. Um, I just did a quick like Stacy Higginbotham, Katie uh, Fahrenbacher, Jeff John Roberts. Like there was some great games. Yeah. My first believer was Katie. Mm-hmm. Second was Liz, and third was uh, Chris Albright, and then Yanko, and then Stacy. Mm-hmm. And those five people. Look at them. Yeah, just right. amazing. Like there was a lot of other great people who came later, but those five kind of stuck by me for a very long time and um, despite my flaws mm-hmm. you know there's a lot of flaws I have I wasn't really I'm no Josh Quidner I'm no David Sherbuck but I do know a good story when I see one so that's what I think I contributed mm-hmm. you know. well we have to talk about the idea that was much talked about in this time it's still your name on the company and so people still want to hear what you have to think about certain things. So this pace that we you alluded to earlier, this, you know, ha- making 30 calls a day, I don't know how many pieces you would post a day. You famously have a heart attack in 2007 that you live blog. <laughs> Was, is, is that, doing that the way you did it, is that just unsustainable even from a health perspective well i i would like i would like to make key distinction yes it was a crazy pace and i was doing like 18 hours a day but i had a really unhealthy lifestyle Mm. i smoked three packs a day i drank to come down and i drank coffee to get up and Mm -hmm. that essentially led to me developing diabetes and and high blood pressure, which led to my heart attack. Except I didn't know any of these things, mm. that I was sick. I thought I was Superman. I can work 18 hours a day. I think that the pace had something to do with it, but the pace led to some 
drastic bad habits which led to to the heart attack. I was super overweight, like, you know, you see like a much skinnier version of me right now. Uh, I was eating so unhealthy and I was smoking, like I said, three packs a day. That's just, that alone can kill you. Mm -hmm. But I was just kind of like making things go faster for me. I was trying to do what most founders try and do accelerate time and make time and do things like, you know, multitask. And, and I think I should have seen the signs and I mm -hmm. didn't mostly because I'm a pretty chill guy and like in, I was actually getting very like emotionally up and down a lot. And mm -hmm. I said like I should have, but I didn't even have a doctor. I didn't even have proper insurance at that time. And so... How old were you, like, in, when you have the heart attack? How old were you? 39. Okay. So you, you, you were a young Superman for long enough that you didn't realize that you were no longer a young Superman. Because I'd already always worked 17, 18 hours a day since, like, I was 15 years old. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I'm not going to, like, what's going to happen to me? This is normal. What was not normal was my seesaw behavior, right? Like, I think... But there was nobody to tell me that I was acting erratically. Everybody assumed this is how I, how I am. And and a lot of it is also like when you're working as a founder and you're trying to do things for the first time, you don't know. You tend to hide a lot of things from other people. And so a lot of the time I would like work at home and there isn't anybody around to see me. And so I'm just interacting with my computer. And I think I lacked that feedback loop the both Liz and Katie would come up and just say, dude, you got to chill out, take a day off, do whatever. Mm -hmm. But I didn't pay any attention. So, you know, blogging wasn't the uh, the reason. I think mm -hmm. in, in the New York Times famously got it wrong. Okay. Like, it was not. Like, I categorically, you know, lay the blame on me because I was smoking three packs a day, drinking 10 cups of coffee, and then topping it all off with a drink and and, like, not sleeping. That was not blogging. That was me. So was it the was it the heart attack that made you shift gears? Yeah, a little bit. I think that that heart attack caused me to pause a little. I lost my way. I uh -huh. I lost. I think I've always believed in I can do this. Like I, even if I don't have an answer, I'll figure it out. And I think for about. 18 months I was lost I didn't know what to do and didn't like I think my self-image was a little bit like shaken up mm -hmm. and like it became blurry and I actually ended up taking a step back I wasn't interested in like scoops didn't really matter at that point and I think that really was in my mind uh, a big like life shift for me well, and the company's big enough at that point that you can hand it over. It's running. No, we ended up raising a lot of money mm -hmm. to turn the company away from me and to other people mm -hmm. running it and stuff like that. And I think, and that puts it on a path which leads to the disaster it ended mm -hmm. up. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, hey, you know, like that's all in the past. I would not go there. But I think those 18 months, I was completely lost. Like, I would... I had very little interest in anything. People, stories, food, world at large. I just was like, what the hell? Like, you know. What brings you back? Yeah, me. Yeah. It's always like, you know, the thing is when you're an immigrant with nobody you know in a country, 
the only person you can rely on is you so you go into a dark place on your by yourself and you come back on your own as well well you know we don't have to go into it but you know the, the company not succeeding is sad but you're still here and in the end what's more yeah. valuable i think you know i have no regrets mm-hmm. like i'm glad i got to i got to try it you know what would have been nice is to make money for people who believed in us whether it was Katie and Liz and Stacy and all my investors and you know I didn't I kind of regret that like that's just one of life's regrets like these people believed in me and I didn't come through for them so you end up at at True Ventures who found were the original, original founders, founders of the company um so today would you I mean you still write for the New Yorker and things like that if um if you had one business card to give should be true ventures so it's yeah. it's venture capital i'm working with my friends that's mm-hmm. how i like i don't think we i think of us working for a, as a working for a venture capital firm mm-hmm. i work with friends and we do what they did for me which is made a dream come true mm-hmm. and i think that's what we are in the business of i think vc is a four letter word these days mm-hmm. but literally the reason i am there is that we believe in in opportunities in technology and the future and doing things which we think are the right thing to do i think that's why i am there the day we stop doing that i'm out the only card then will be just me <laughs> i am not going to do another media company though mm. that i'm pretty sure of do you think you're good at it vc i will get good at it You know, I got good at writing and editing and creating media, so, so I think I'm on the path to getting better with my uh with my investments. I I would lie and say that oh, I know everything. I have all the answers. I don't. But I'm going, you know, I focus on my core strengths, which is understanding people, which is what I know the best. I love networks and communications and I think they are still the number one reason we are we are better animals than the animals themselves and the third thing is like I believe that tomorrow's future our technology future is is better than today and we can find new things to do every day that is what like you know I used to write about it now mm-hmm. I put money behind it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. maybe I'll get rich one day <laughs> Okay, so I'd like to end with um what excites you right now? And that can be oh, this trend in tech or it can be Brian, I just got into kayaking. Let me tell you why it's so fantastic. Like what what are you excited about right now? Well, there's a bunch of things I'm excited about. Like so I'll give you personal and professional. Please. So personally, I'm like I'm obsessed with photography and mm. and you know i just like i'm doing crazy things right now like going to alaska and glaciers and shooting photos and making landscapes and essentially trying to capture time that's what i like to do with my photography i'm doing that and uh, and as a result of that i have become obsessed about the idea of cameras and camera culture and photography so that has led to a book mm. called third eye and which will be published next year if i ever finish it 
uh, by HarperCollins Business. And it's essentially about, you know, how the camera phone has evolved and turned us into these selfie-taking monsters, but, but where are we going with it? Mm. And so for me, that is like the really perfect marriage of personal and professional. Uh, professionally, I am completely and absolutely obsessed with the idea of how camera has gone from a device of creating an image and capturing a moment to capturing raw data and turning that into intelligence insights and something more than that. You can call it augmented reality, mm -hmm. you can call it whatever, but the, the, the camera as a device to capture data, mm -hmm. a sensor to capture data, is my professional obsession right now. And that means it will lead to demand for more intense hardware, more intense chips, more intense networks, more intense mm -hmm. software, more better artificial intelligence, more machine right. learning. So, but it is like that one small little thing is what obsesses me. Just like that email became my sole obsession for the internet, mm -hmm. the the camera as a visual sensor has become my obsession. And I am, I just cannot, like, you know, I just saw a company recently, which is one of our portfolio companies, and I'm not gonna try and, you know, put their name. But you can, I can put my, like, finger on the lens of the iPhone and the app can measure my blood pressure and heartbeat. Mm. To me, it's like, wait, this is not really a camera, right? This is something else. Mm. And I, it's a tricorder from Star Trek. Right. Yeah, I, I have high blood pressure, right? So, and I carry a blood pressure device with me, mm. which takes up, like, you know, substantial part of my luggage. And it's like, I don't have to do it now if this thing is done. Yeah, like that to me is when you see the possibilities and. That's what I'm excited about. You know, you you'll see some of it written up on my blog, uh, which is simple. Just it's Om Darko. Mm -hmm. There is no Giga, mm -hmm. no mm -hmm. Micro, just me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, and it's fun. Like, and, and I'm obsessed with these days. I'm really obsessed with sneakers. And I don't know why. <laughs> I think all middle-aged guys have to have a, a, an obsession, right? Yeah, these job varmitos, they discontinued them for like six months. So when they came back, I bought like eight pairs so that I could never You're be without such a again. Dude, man. Yeah. <laughs> well, but I, I got to say that that's fascinating to, pardon the pun, to look at technology through the lens of just the camera. Um, that's really interesting. Uh, oh, Malik, fantastic. Thank you for coming on the show, remembering all that and just... I, I said, I, I mean this, like, I, I've been a fan of yours for as long as I've been in tech, and it's great to sit down with you. I'm honored that you had me on the show, and thank you so much for doing this. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at nethistorypod, and my personal Twitter is at brianmcc. Thanks for listening.